0: This episode is brought to you by Big Little Lies on HBO. In season two, Trouble returns to Monterey, California, as relationships unravel, loyalties erode, and the potential for emotional and bodily injury still looms large. Critics claim the second season is As Good As TV Gets. Nominated for five Emmys, including Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for Laura Dern and Meryl Streep. Mimi Leder is a force when it comes to female filmmakers. She directed the first DreamWorks movie, The Peacemaker, starring George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. And she's already won two Emmy Awards for Outstanding Drama Series on ER and Directing on ER. She's up again at the Emmys this year in the Directing for a Drama Series category for The Morning Show. And she's here with us today on Crew Crawl. What is brilliant about this show is that it captures how the infrastructure is crooked and sweeps and hides a lot of crimes, human crimes against people under the carpet. And as early as yesterday, uh, we saw an unfortunate situation with an esteemed executive. Ron Meyer, yeah. um, kind of having a fall from grace uh, at NBC Universal due to a alleged affair and how that, that backfired and how it went against the company policies. And there's other things going on at NBC Universal. And I'm not my first question to you is I'm not specifically asking you to comment on NBC Universal and Ron Meyer, <laughs> but what's going on in Hollywood now? It's almost like now we are beginning to take an accountability after everything that we've seen that was going on in the morning show. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, just how it's, there's a changing of the tide. Is this permanent or do you think this might be temporary or just simply reactive?
1: Well, I feel that the, the Me Too movement happened, right? And we did incorporate it into our show. It became the main theme of our show. And in Hollywood today, which is not that long ago when the Me Too movement broke, it just began. It's not, you know, maybe it's not talked about as much because um, it exploded. It happened. Behavior changed on sets, in the workplace. Um, uh, where abuse was tolerated before, but it is is now it was, was tolerated and concealed um, is still is, is less, but it's still happening and it's still happening with uh, people in very powerful, powerful positions and, it's almost like a disease that you can't find the cure for, you know? Um, it's sort of part of the fabric of human behavior in this large, huge power structure that has gone on for so long that, I mean, this is just my opinion. It's, you know, um, you know it, takes, uh, it takes time for people to find the truth and see their complicity in it and um you know that's a hard thing to do is to look at your culture your corporate culture and say we have to change this and a lot of places obviously have changed it people aren't looking the other way anymore people aren't saying well this is how it's always been you know so um you know it's changing but obviously it still exists and yeah. uh so all I can say is, you know, we have to be diligent. You know, uh, you know, we all individually have to be diligent and and um, and and honest about what's going on and talk about it and call it out when it's there. It's almost like, no, I was going to give you a bad analogy about, you know, we're all going to be going back to work, right? And we're all going to be wearing our PPE and we're all going to be wearing our masks and we're going to be working in this crazy new normal. So for two weeks, people are going to be like, you know, you can't take your mask off. You can't, I mean, imagine wearing a mask for 10 hours a day and not a trained physician Um, or people, obviously our frontline workers who are trained, you know, who wear masks all the time. It's the two weeks later when you're still wearing your mask that you have to like be diligent, even more diligent than you were. In the beginning because the virus hasn't gone away the virus is still here and the virus of sexual abuse in the workplace is still here and that's my analogy about how diligent and and how uncomplacent is that a word how non-complacent we have to be we have you know how how we have to be more. Um, more on top of it than ever.
0: The Tell me about coming to this project. You're an executive producer. You directed three key episodes, the pilot, the second episode, and the finale, which you're nominated for, the interview.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, how did it morph and change? For me, what I've loved about this show is how it is echoed I feel like I'm watching everything that went on with the today show and the Matt Lauer scandal as a slow moving as a, is a wonderful slow moving car crash. And I feel like I'm inside of that. And that's what resonates with me. The Andy lack of it all, the, you know, Marsha Gay Harden and kind of like the, the Ronan Farrow type role. All of that just screams so loudly to me. But tell me, you coming on board, and how did the project change? How did it morph?
1: Well, you know, I had just finished The Leftovers. And uh, Michael and I was off to go do uh, On the Basis of Sex. And Michael Ellenberg and I had dinner. And, you know, he said, you know, I have this project. Jen Aniston, Reese Witherspoon have signed on and, you know, it's based on the book by Brian Stelter and it's about behind the scenes of a morning news show. And, you know, I've always been a huge fan of, of broadcast news network, Larry Sanders. And I, you know, I said, and it was before it was even sold to Apple and, I said, okay, I'm in <laughs> and I have never, ever signed on to a project before, uh, I've, before a script was written. So I came on basically right after Jen and Reese agreed to do it. And, and I was just so excited to see what this would be. And I went off and directed my film and they sold it to Apple. There was an original writer on it, Jay Carson, and that did not work out. And um, they wanted to go in a different direction. And we brought on Carrie Aaron, who who has such a unique voice in terms of this world, these characters, this take on this uh, show that this, this morning show world that seems to be one thing and then you've the camera stop rolling. And we get into the complexities of who these people really are. And I think with an adept uh, understanding of, uh, you know, of these women, of these characters, and trying to infuse and infusing comedy into the show, which, I mean, there's no great drama without comedy. Um, you know, Carrie Aaron was the right person to, to develop this and, and create it. You know, and I created it alongside of her with my partners Jen and Reese and Lauren Newstadter and Kristen Hahn, and we were this we're this kind of ragtag of scrappy, you know, producers <laughs> with Michael Ellenberg. You know, he's the one dude, and um, you know he kind of put us all together. And you know, this show was seen. Really through a female gaze, through a female lens, and so that's how I got involved in the show. And then I went to New York with my production designer, um, John Pino, and and a couple of our producers, and we went to the Space Show, and we went to the um, uh, uh, GMA. And you know, we we had you know we talked with Brian, and we we looked at every detail. We looked at all the wires on the on the ceilings, and looked at the placement of the monitors and how this director behaved at GMA and how that director behaved at uh, how that, where that director stood at the Today Show versus GMA and really got into the weeds and the minutia of what it looks like and feels like. So then we, you know, brought it, created it, you know, built these sets. And I really wanted, as I saw these, um, you know, when we're broadcasting to do these, you know, for it to be very bright and for it to be very warm. And, you know, Jen's speaking right into the camera and she's sucking you in. And, you know, we, I mean, at one point in my life, I was very into like watching the morning shows and getting dressed, Mm you know, we all do. Now I'm very much Morning Joe, but, um, you know, my I watch way too much uh, political news. And anyway, so, um, you know, so what was really interesting to me was creating this very bright world. And then when we turn off that camera and we're into their lives, we're into this, you know, the complexity of who they are and how fucked up they all are and how real they all are and how they have these really high class, crazy problems. And who cares, but they are people, they're human beings, you know, they're human beings that speak to us every day. And it was just a really great, exploration and when the and then when the me too movement happened you know we incorporated it into the first season and that examination of predatory uh behavior and toxic and a toxic workplace really um you know spoke to us and there's our story
0: carrie was telling me i you know she says, oh, the Today Show and Matt Lauer and all that had no influence on me while I was writing this show, and I was very dumbfounded by that. But was that breaking as it, like, how do you look at this show next to that timeline? Do you look back and say, oh, my God, you know, how you guys got this right? Or was that occurring, was that occurring in time when you were writing the show or, or shooting?
1: It had already, it was occurring, I think. I don't remember. All I know is, is that there's so many instances of behavior, uh, bad behavior from, you know, that we, uh, for men that we were able to draw from. And, you know, that is why it is not the Matt Lauer story, you know, Mm -hmm. Mitch Kessler story. And, you know, there was just so much, I guess, I hate to use the word inspiration, but there were so many <laughs> so much to draw from. A very much an amalgamation of many people. Are you I don't remember did, the timeline, honestly? I can't remember. I'm sure it had already broken. Yeah. It broken.
0: What um, can you tease anything about season two? Is it still are you guys still breaking story on that? You had such a tight first season. Me, I'm like, where do they go? Well, is it another dilemma?
1: Let me bring something up to you that I think Carrie uh, about Carrie that is very witchy. She's like a witch. So we, if you if you go back and look at the final sequence where Jen has her breakdown, yes, breakthrough, and Mm her explosion, yeah, Reese starts talking. You know, she, you know, they say take it, take it, Bradley. And, you know, Jen's pacing the stage back and forth. Reese is talking about a ship moored off the coast with 5,000 people, um, uh, in quarantine with a virus. Yes. Yes. So, you know, when, when, you know, we were shooting, we shot for 13 days. And when we, um, you know, when we shut down, we all just kind of looked at that and went, what the fuck? She's a witch, you know, and <laughs> what well, I'd say is I can't really talk about the second season, but I can tell you, you know, the writing will reflect the world we're living in. Uh, I you know, and um, you know, how we are we're not we're a morning show, we're a news show, whether however light it's going to be.
0: David, if you haven't seen anything exciting, you got to check out season two of HBO's Big Little Lies. Season two takes place in the wake of Perry Wright's death. He was this bad dude husband, abusive guy played by Alex Skarsgård, and he was married to one of the women in the Monterey Five. They're an upper class group of friends, and they're kind of uh, a little bit guilty of what's been going on with him. Complicating things, his mother's around this season. Mary Louise Wright, she's played by Meryl Streep, who's nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama. And also having her own dilemmas is Renata Klein, one of the Monterey Five, played by Laura Dern. She's also nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actress for a Drama Series at the Emmys. Overall, HBO's season two of Big Little Lies counts five Emmy noms. Check it out. My favorite shot, uh, yes, in the entire season. And when I was re-watching the finale last night, I'm like, "Great, it, it is in the last episode that she's nominated for. It's not, it's not in the penultimate episode. Right. And I brought this up to Carrie, but I, I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. My favorite shot is when is when um, uh, Duplass is fired and he leaves the office and spills wonderfully into this New York city crowd. Yeah. It's great. It's as iconic as Dustin Hoffman crossing the street to me and saying, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Um, so how, and all I think about is how do you do that during COVID? in <laughs> The new COVID pandemic. Uh,
1: when we did it, it was like, okay, you know, he's just yelled at him in this profile and saying, fuck you, you know, I'm going to, whatever he says, I can't even remember, but it was so great. The shouting take, cause I said, go for it. And, you know, then we were out in the streets of New York when we did the New York part of the shoot. And it was like, um, it was, let's do the Tootsie shot. So we got on a ladder and we did that shot and, you know, I had three lenses on him. I had, you know, the Tootsie, long lens wide. I had tighter and tighter, you know, had all my cameras hidden uh, in the crowd. And we had our group of people around him. But of course, we're on Fifth Avenue and thousands of people were in our shot. And, you know, uh, now how do you do that during COVID? You don't. Um, You know, I mean, you, here's the thing. You can do... You know, we're in the middle of discussing all that. I mean, I yeah. think what is safe and what is and what is not safe. You know, we have
0: empty streets now.
1: We have empty. Streets.
0: Like you said, the show reflects what's going to be going on in the world.
1: Yeah, it's but in I didn't. New York. Say, but I didn't say the whole that. That's all we're dealing with. Right. So, right. So, how, so you know, how do you deal with a shot in COVID times and shoot it like you're not in COVID times? Well you know, the cornerstone of shooting now is testing, washing your hands um, and wearing masks. And so in order to work with extras and our actors who are maskless, they have to be tested, you know, so we're going to be doing a lot of trickery. I mean, I think everybody is, I think we're we're going to be doing CGI and set extension and having a certain amount of people around actors who are tested and safe, if that is even safe. And if, you know, the protocols are so strict, and they should be, and we're only going to do what's safe. But there are ways to put few people in a frame and then add a whole bunch. You know, it's, 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 it's really challenging, this new normal. It's really challenging to tell a story that's not in covid with how we normally behave, how we're all over each other, how we're all hugging and we're all like all over each other. It's the thing that is most natural in life to hug somebody, to love somebody, to be close to somebody has become the new normal is to back away from any contact, any, any normal behavior. And it's, that has nothing to do with our show, but it's just, it's just like, it's challenging. Our world is challenging now.
0: Not, I think I might be on the same wavelength here as I ask you about this, but there's this, I was wondering if you could talk about the beginning of the interview, the episode yeah. and Nestor Carbon, Carbinal. Yeah. As Yanko is in a bar and he's talking about El Nino. <laughs> and the camera goes up very slowly on him. Tell us about the whole metaphor of that and, and setting up that establishing shot of where you wanted to go in this final episode.
1: Well, you know, brilliantly written again by Carrie. And I wanted to shoot it in a way where we start off and we don't know where we are. You know, it starts very close. Drick needs to kind of see a little bit of a face. And I wanted to see hands and I wanted, you know, one of the things my cinematographer, Michael Grady and I uh, do when we first start a project is we talk about what are the rules of, uh, of the, what's the visual landscape? What are our rules? Meaning, are we only shooting handheld? Are we shooting the whole show in long lens in our color palette? Are we eliminating red or blue? You know what I mean? We think of all of those details, you know, so that we create a look. And I decided that I don't want to have any rules in on the morning show. I want to just fucking go where it takes me emotionally. And so, you know, this scene was shot handheld. It was shot on a dolly. It was shot with long lens. It was, you know, just a, a whole mix of of. of delicious ingredients, you know, to make you feel, uh, that a storm was coming. And so, um, the El Nino is, you know, we all know what El Nino is. It's a storm. It's coming. It's the rain. It's the, you know, get inside, cover yourself. And so I wanted to, you know, he's a little drunk in the scene and he's talking to whoever will listen. And so I wanted to make it choppy and, and very, quick cuts and moments so that we could feel the fragments of his mind, the way he was thinking. And, and then at the end, just do this kind of push into him slowly to, to, to look you right in the eye and say, a storm's a coming Better, better, you know, brace up, hold on to your hats. And that was the, that was my intention in terms of how I directed it. And um,
0: Talk about working with Jennifer and Reese. What are their strengths and virtues tonally and how do you balance them? Going back to the pilot, one of the things that I loved was that it was almost a De Niro Pacino heat thing where they are separated for a while until they're first on camera. And you see that that kind of intensity between them, but this carries through. This carries, their, that rhythm carries all the way through to the final episode. Can you talk about working with them and accentuating their their um, their each of their virtues?
1: You know, the show season one takes place in twenty three days.
0: Uh
1: huh. And Jen's character throws Reese's character into this world that she didn't ask to be thrown into and in the 23 days that happens you know Mitch is fired sexual allegations Reese becomes an anchor and we know what happens in the story but for me you know and they have a lot of scenes together but do they really know each other you know I think uh a lot of their relationship is extremely deep in moments and extremely shallow in other moments because they're not really friends, right? Mm. And that moment when Ree says to Jen, are we going to do this? They haven't discussed going rogue and are we going to expose the network? And I mean, they've talked around it but they haven't actually had the conversation or a plan, you know, it just happens. And I think in that moment, there's a real connection between them that, that happened. And I think that's going to be interesting to explore. Um, I don't know what question you, you asked me.
0: No, it was, it was working. It was working with, with them as, as actresses and how each of them, what each of their strengths are and kind of balancing all of that.
1: Well, you know, they
0: have a wonderful, they have a wonderful volley going on.
1: They have a wonderful volley and a wonderful chemistry. And, you know, they work together on friends, but you never know in this context, you know, how is that chemistry going to work? How is that interview going to happen? And when we did it, it happened and it was exciting, you know, and I mean, they are both so extraordinary and they're both extremely different, Um, extremely different ways of working, um, different approaches. And, um, uh, you know, every day was a, you know, kind of a lovely surprise. And, you know, as to how far each of them would go, like Jen, you know, Jen doing this incredible drama I knew Jen had this in her you know when I saw The Good Girl I knew that Jen had this deep deep well and I like couldn't wait till one day being able to explore that with her and so you know we were when I was doing ER she was doing Friends we were right next door uh, you know and um, that was fun and so all I'm saying is that it was a, it was really a great experience to go on this journey with Jen uh, to, you know, to explore and develop this character and, you know, working with her and Reese both was extremely fulfilling. You know, they made me look good, you know, Um, you know, I was their guide, their captain, their, you know, whatever I was, you know, their director, but um, you know, we just created this, this little, this, we just created, you know, they would, you know, they would bring so much of who this, who, you know, they, they created these characters as much as Carrie did, as much as I did, you know what I mean? They created, they stepped into the shoes of this, of these women and they became these women. And, you know, finding the tone of that in the pilot, Pilots are always extremely hard and extremely scary to do. Um, you know, I always look and go, "What's harder, the pilot or the or the um, or the finale?" The pilot is always harder, I believe, because you are dangling all these actors, and you don't know if the DNA is all going to mix up, and there's going to be synchronicity, and and there was, and but. For me, just, uh, you didn't ask me this question, but directing the finale is far more satisfying than directing a pilot because you're setting everything up. And it's it's sort of, you go on this journey the entire season and the finale is the big payoff. And, you know, you've birthed this baby and then the baby starts to grow and find its own wings. and And so you know, in the finale, you know, there's a much greater understanding of who they are. And then
0: the decision to end on Mitch as, um, I believe we pull away from him.
1: Yes. I'll tell you um, that was in the script. It was written as a push in Mm -hmm. and And also there was stuff written before that. He comes to the house, he's alone in these big empty rooms. And I shot that. But when I, I think I I showed my cut, I had taken it all out. And when we shot that scene and when, you know, so I had script and I was like, where am I going to shoot Mitch, you know, in this final shot? Because it wasn't written where, it just was about, you know. He sits somewhere, you know, or stands and there's this pushing. So uh, I can't quite remember. So, you know, we had had that big scene in the pilot with Jen and um, Mitch uh, on the island. And I kept thinking, um, you know, I was sitting with my cinematographer, I said, I want to sit him on this table. And because this table is humongous and it's lonely and it's sad as hell. And if Mitch sits here, we can see his reflection in the black reflective surface of the island. I said, can you light it so that we see two images? And, you know, I I always felt it was a pullout. And so I, you know, I did the pullouts. And we did sev- several different versions. You know, the moment's really very much about how Rich finally gets it. He He finally gets it a little bit. He gets what he did. And and it's also, I wanted to say goodbye. And I wanted to just pull away and show him in this island that he has made for himself. You know, that was the metaphor, that he's on an island of his own creation. And, you know, you make your bed, you sleep in it. And, you know, that was the intention of the pullout, the reveal, And um, his loneliness. And the quiet version was the version to go with. You know, we tried him crying, you know, him feeling it. It just didn't feel. It wasn't satisfying. But this was satisfying.
0: The the last question I wanted to ask you is about, is an industry one, about the plight of female filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Do you think it has improved? Do you think there's more opportunities in TV? You came up at um, you know at, at such a great time, you know, with with, with Penny Marshall um, among 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 other among other female filmmakers, and I'm just curious, what are your thoughts? Is it still is there still a glass ceiling that hasn't been broken?
1: Well, I think we've cracked the ceiling. I think in television, especially, you know, we have broken that glass ceiling. It's still not the numbers still aren't equal, but it's up to people like me and Leslie Linka Glatter and people who are in positions of power, who executive produce these shows as well as direct them to hire women and people of color. And we do. And uh, it's up for you know people who, I, who brought me up for me to bring them up. And in, in film it's, it's, it's better, but it's not great. I mean, it's it's getting better. Like for example, on Deadline uh, yesterday, my daughter Hannah Leader and her creative partner Alexander Kachev, i don't know if you read the article, maybe you wrote the article—they um, made a film. A couple, they made a film that they co-directed, co-starred and co-wrote. Were the crew, and they were the cinematographers. They did the sound. They did everything. My daughter cut it. Anyway, they made this film. They went on the festival route. They made this film because who's going to hire? They were like, who's going to hire me to direct a film? And they wrote it. They directed it. They went. And they were on the circuit in the fall. They won practically every best of the fest um, in, uh, you know, the uh, festivals they went to. They won everything. And so 1091 just acquired it for... Uh, theatrical release and in September and and SVOD in early December because they're avoiding the election. But point is, is that young women filmmakers have to go and make their own films. And my daughter did it. I with Alexandra Kotchev, who is Ted Kotchev's daughter, by the way, the great director. And you know, um, I'm just saying, like when I started. I made my first short on short ends and people probably don't even know what that is today. You know what I mean? Like it's easy. It's not, nothing's easy, but you can do it. You know, there's, a, you just have to believe in yourself and, and have the conviction and have these stories inside that you must tell. And it's up for us people like myself to hire them. Like Sherry Lansing is the only woman who ever hired me to direct anything. and. That's pretty amazing, I've had a very long career and it's always been men, great men, Steven Spielberg, um, John Wells, Greg Hoblet, Steven Um I don't wanna leave any of the great men who have given me my break, but, and there are great guys, there are great men in positions who are giving women jobs and opportunities, but it's gotten better and it will get even better, I believe that.
0: Mimi Leader, thank you so much for talking with Crew Call. It's been such a pleasure.
1: It's been you're, you know, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. And I love that you loved it from the beginning because my heart broke a little when we got those bad reviews, those negative reviews. And I was like, I just, and I got, I mentioned it in some interview and I got bashed for saying it, but I don't care. I'll say what I think, but it, it was. I just felt like, what were they watching? I thought it was really good. <laughs>
0: and, Everything came around.
1: Yeah, because and it got,
0: they got to the end,
1: and they got, and it got better. And like I said, beginnings of shows are tough. You can lose an audience, like The Leftovers did in the beginning. I don't know if you were a fan, but you know that show got better and better and better. And anyway. It's, it's hard. It's all hard and it's all wonderful, all the experiences. Thank you for your time as well.
0: Thank you so much.
1: All right, take care.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.